In the beginning, God spoke all things into existence and placed mankind into the world to bear his image and care for his good creation. But mankind would not obey God's one request. The light of God's good creation began to fade, and a new darkness now separated mankind from its creator. But God loved his creation and promised to once again return the light and overcome the darkness. For thousands of years, all creation watched and waited as mankind continued to struggle. But God continued to speak through the growing darkness, encouraging mankind to remain faithful, but they would not, and the light continued to fade until it seemed to finally be extinguished, and God, it seemed, fell silent. But the story wasn't over. After hundreds of years of growing silence and darkness, on a starry night, a light appeared in the sky and attracted the attention of traveling mystics. And over the dark fields of the countryside, the heavens were pulled back and a multitude of angels began to announce to lowly shepherds that God was fulfilling his ancient promise. It was as if God was once again saying, let there be light. And so that's the angle we're looking at with the Christmas story because we're doing something a little different this year. We're not just looking at Luke and Matthew, which have more details around Jesus's birth, but they are also uh, there. We're looking at John, which takes a little bit of a different introduction to Jesus. And so, so glad you're with us. Also, Church Online, I know you guys are thinking, how did I get out here so fast? Uh, but only online knows because we have our own little thing, right? Um, but we're so glad you're here. And if you missed week one, you can go back and watch it. But we're looking at the, the account of John because when John wrote his letter, he didn't know he was going to be included in the Bible. And he had a very specific way to introduce Jesus. Jesus to the world that didn't really include any of the details about Jesus's birth, which we're going to celebrate in our Christmas experience, but we're looking at his account because he says a lot of things that are really pertinent to how we live and the Christmas story in John chapter one. And so last week we read this, we kicked off with his first words were in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. And then he goes on in verse three to say, through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so we spent the entire week last week on the point that John made it a point to point to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, that Jesus wasn't just with God in the beginning, he was God in the beginning. And so we looked at what happened in the beginning, and we saw that at the very beginning of God's book, he made it clear that he wants everyone to know he is the author and giver of life. From the beginning, he hovers over chaos, he hovers over darkness, and wherever he's able to insert himself, he brings light and he brings life that will flourish. That's what he does with his authority, it's what he does with his power, and that's what he did. Um, and so John points to that in the beginning. Uh, and so we see that that's the plan. But again, we talked about how man seized autonomy. We thought we knew better than God. And so he actually banished them from the garden. And it wasn't as much as punishment. It actually as it was grace because in the garden, they would have lived forever. And so God said, it's actually not good that you live forever. Now I'm going to let your, your body die and your soul and your spirit will be, be able to be regenerated upon death. And so he sent them out of the garden to, to, to plod their way. And early on in the story, about 12 chapters into the Genesis, we see that God handpicks one one man that he says, I'm going to make your family into a great nation. 
and not that you're any better than anyone, but you're going to be my representative in all the other nations. Um, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people, and you will live differently. Um, you will look different. You will talk different. Um, I'm going to bless you, but not so people will go, oh, what makes you so special, but so that you can actually be a blessing to other people. And based on how you live and treat the world around you, people will want to follow me as well. That man's name was Abraham, who had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel, and that nation became the nation of Israel. But you'll never believe it, but they like screwed the whole thing up the whole time. Like the whole story is God going, I have a way I want this to go. And they were like, no, we want what we want. And so God was like, no, no, you don't want what you want. You think you want what you want, but you actually want what I have for you. He's like, I'm going to be with you. And he's like, okay, well, let, let's go. And they're like, well, we want to go over here. He's like, that's not for you. And like, well, everybody else has a king. Why can't we have a king? You don't want a king. Okay, here's the king. See, that didn't go well. And he tells them a, play, a, a way to live. Like, we, here's how I want you to live. Here's how I want you to treat each other. I want you to be generous. I want you to forgive. But they started noticing everybody else wasn't generous, didn't forgive. And they were like, we want to live a different way. And so God, through his grace and mercy, still dwelled with them. And he would send um, men. He would send prophets. He even raised up a kingdom. And so these people did exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They were like, yeah, we're not going to listen to God. We're going to do it our own way. But God in his mercy, God in his patience, God in his grace, even though they invited their own chaos, they invited their own darkness, they were slaves in Egypt, they were warned about all this. He says, I'm still going to rescue you. I always hear the cries of the rescue and I come to rescue. And so he leads them out. Like no sooner do they get free and they forget about God, they start worship, they start worshiping other gods. I mean, he said, "Hey, don't worship other gods. Don't marry other foreign women because you're, they're just going to lead you astray and they're going to uh, like you're going to worship other gods." And like, oh, or here's another idea: let's actually marry foreign women and worship other gods. Um, again, didn't work well well for them. And so it's just like this story of they can't get out of their own way. Israel becomes this powerful nation for a minute like David and Solomon, but they start doing things their own way and they end up back in captivity. The Babylonians take them into captivity and they just are so far from God. They're so far from living how God wanted them to live. Most of the kings were bad. They were tyrants, they were evil. And then so God was like, man, I need somebody to get their attention. So he would select these guys to be the voice of God. Does anybody know what those people were called in the Old Testament? Prophets. So these guys were the oracle of God. Like, okay, I want you to tell people what I'm saying. So for a few times, these prophets would show up and be like, guys, God said this. And they're like, oh my gosh, we forgot. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But that only lasted a minute. And then afterwards, they start, God started sending more prophets and they were like, yeah, we don't want to hear what you guys have to say anymore. So they just started killing the prophets. True story. And so God's like, hey, like, I really want you to live this way. If you don't, it's going to go bad for you. Like, you're supposed to represent me. And it just, it's like this nonstop story of humanity getting in its own way, inviting more chaos, inviting more darkness, God being more and more patient than he ever should have. But the whole time he's like, listen, as soon as this went down in the garden, I knew you guys were going to mess this up. And so there's a prophecy about Jesus as early as Genesis chapter three. And he said, one day you're gonna strike his heel, but he's gonna smash your head. That wasn't referring to snake biting people when we don't see him in the garden. It was referring to he was gonna come and live and Jesus was gonna conquer death, hell, and the grave once and for all. And so for thousands of years, there was a promise that I know this is bad. I know it's dark. I know it's not good, but I'm gonna send a savior. I'm gonna send a Messiah and, and you're gonna know and he's gonna restore the kingdom of God. Now, he said he was going to restore the kingdom of God. What they heard was he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And that's why they couldn't even see it coming. And so Jesus 
shows up. And so as you saw in the video, there's literally 400, the last prophet in the Old Testament is about 400 years before Jesus. 400 years of silence. It's dark. They're in captivity. The Roman Empire is rising. And it's just like, man, how many times are we going to just mess this thing up with God? And, and all the while they're going, it's been bad. It's getting worse. It's dark. It's getting darker. There was chaos. There's more chaos. And you said you'd come. You said you'd rescue us. And so it's like, when is he coming? But they knew what to look for. And so Jesus came into that context. And Jesus, John, again, he's going to fast forward in verse four from creation all the way to Jesus. He's going to jump the Old Testament and here's how, again, he decides to introduce Jesus in verse four. He says, now in Jesus, same scripture, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. I love verse five right here. And it says, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. This was written in a time when it was really dark. This was written in a time when it did not look good. This was written in a time where the odds were forever not in their favor. And he said, the light has come and the darkness cannot understand it. It cannot comprehend it. It cannot overcome it. And he jumps ahead in a couple of verses later in verse nine, and he kind of doubles down on this idea of Jesus being the light. He says, the true light, Jesus, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. But he said, here's the crazy part. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, they didn't even recognize him. They were so far from him, they didn't even know he's the one who made all of this. And it was for him and it was for them. 11, it says, he came to that which was his own, but they didn't even receive him. But, verse 12 says, yet, or but, to all who did receive him, to those believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what John is saying is Jesus literally came to solve. He came once and for all to, to be the light. And most people missed it. But the few people who saw it, the few people who were open to it, who invited the light back in, who, who, who recognized Jesus, they became the children of God. And Jesus came. You got to understand this from the beginning. Jesus came for two main reasons. I always knew growing up in church, I always knew the first one. My whole life, I knew Jesus came. One of the main, the first and main reason Jesus came was to restore the broken relationship between us and God. And he did it by giving his life willingly on behalf of the sins of all humanity, of all, all mankind, all time. Jesus literally died for every mistake, every shame, every pain, your worst night, your worst decision. He died and he offers his sacrifice if you are willing to receive the forgiveness. And he gives his life and his best for your worst. It's the greatest exchange of all time. And he did it for all humanity. And by the way, he didn't just die for the sins you've committed up till today. He actually died for the stuff you're going to do tomorrow that you don't think you're going to do tomorrow, but you are. I have a friend that says it this way. The cross is the greatest expectation that you're going to continue to screw up. So you're going to need the cross again tomorrow. So when Jesus is never, we never, when we come with our dirt and our shame and our hopelessness, Jesus is never like, what a shocker. Like, what? Like, he's like, yeah, it's what the cross is for. So he came to die. He wiped the slate clean, which is the best news ever. But he also came for a second reason, because remember, God had a chosen people for 2,500 years. He gave the law of Moses for 1,500 years. And do you know what happened over that time period? They totally messed it up. They misrepresented God. They didn't know what God was like. They had 612 mishvats, which are like laws to be right by God and all these commandments. And there was confusion and there was oppression. And, and so Jesus also came to show what God was like. 
because nobody knew what God was like. And so Jesus regularly says, I can only do what I see the Father doing. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he came not only to take away all of our sins, but he also came to show what God was like. And here's what's crazy about this time. And here's what's so epic. And I wanna dive into this because I think this will help add some weight and gravity and appreciation for the Christmas series. Again, the brilliance of John putting this in, in here is they knew what they were looking for. For over a thousand years, there had been prophecies and predictions about a Messiah, a Savior who was to come. They, they weren't just wandering around going like, I hope this changes. They knew they were looking for something specific. It's the perfect example of this is it's the difference between the way men shop and the way women shop. Have you ever gone shopping with a group of men or a group of women? It is two vastly different experiences because hunter, men by nature are hunters. Not, that's a generality, but by nature, we're just, women by nature generally are, are gatherers, grazers, right? And so women and men have very different objectives, goals, and experiences when they go shopping. And it doesn't matter if it's food, clothes, shoes, it doesn't matter, right? If a woman goes shopping, it's like, where are you going? I think we're gonna go to Target. And you walk in, these women walk in, and they're like, it's just glorious. <laughs> what are we here looking for? Well, I don't know, what do they have? We're gonna start our way over here and then we're gonna make our way to the back and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna compare this to that and then we're gonna work our way over there and, and they can spend two, three, four hours in one store looking at everything and imagining if we had kids and this, if this was in my size and, and when I do Weight Watchers in January and, and they do all the things and these will look, oh, and, and I don't even talk to that friend in high school, but she has a little kid and I wanna buy these little booties and like, it's, like, it's amazing. And then you, they come home and they're gone five hours. It's like, hey, how was shopping? It was amazing. What'd you get? Nothing. <laughs> what were you looking for? I don't know. I just had such a great time. Men have a completely different objective. Command and conquer. Have a plan, have a strategy. If you haven't thought about it, by the time you get in the store, you're already kind of a loser and you've half failed. What do I need? Where is it at? And how quick can I get in, get out? Because our wives are smart. They give us a list. We have a list. And anybody who's been married for five minutes know, stick to the list. <laughs> Any guy who was, had a list and it says, I want the Canelli beans, but these were on sale. And you're like, I just thought, no, 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 don't think. Like you don't do that. You stick to the list. And so I do this when I go to the store. I know what's on my list. I think through where everything is in the store. And I'm like, if I, start, if I start here and work my way around, I work my way to the back. I come up down here. I go across there where the frozen section is. I end here and I do it one time and I get to the end. And two minutes and 12 seconds later, I have 37 things and they're already scanning my items, right? If I have to go across and go back, I have failed. I'm like, what a waste of a minute and a half. I'm never getting back. I, was, I literally will say out loud, dang it, I was just over there because I know what I'm looking for. She said two cans, 14.5 ounce organic black beans. You know what that means in my world? 14.5 ounce black organic beans. That's it, no thinking required. Go, oh, kill, got it, oh, right? I don't drag the deer over my shoulders like, here you go, you know, whatever, same thing. This is what it would have been like for them. There was no like, hey, this whole like life thing and Israel thing and God's promise thing isn't going well. I sure, let's just walk around and see what they got. No, no, they're like, because there were so many specific predictions and prophecies. So I wanna spend a minute on this, but before I do, I wanna ask you this because this is where I think the Christmas story starts to get personal for us. Have you ever felt like the odds were against you? You ever been in a situation, whether it was a job, a girlfriend, a promotion, maybe even just making it in life. 
I was born to the wrong family, on the wrong side of the tracks. I don't look a certain way. I don't have a certain education. I'm from a certain part of the world or the part of the country. I think I found that most people have a, some, some part of their life or the world where they feel like kind of the odds are just not in their favor. The odds are against them. Well, if you've ever felt or you're living in a situation where you felt like, man, I feel like the odds are against me, like it's stacked against me, then this Christmas story is really for you because that's exactly how the Israelites would have felt at the time of Jesus, that the odds were just not in their favor. Like if it had, could have gone wrong, it had, they were on the wrong side of society. And oh, by the way, there had been all of these predictions about a savior, a Messiah, but there were so many of them and they were so specific and they were so spread out by, by so many different people who never even knew each other. The likelihood of any of them actually happening, like forget about it. And more, and you think about the more predictions they are and the more specific they are, the less the likelihood, right? And I believe that part of the Christmas story we don't talk about is that Jesus literally defied an, an unimaginable amount of odds by coming and being with us and doing what he did. Why? So that when you felt like the odds were against you, you would be reminded that there was a God that the odds were against and he defied all odds so that when you are facing the odds, he can bring that light and push it out in your life. When you feel like the odds are against you, he's like, I'm the God who defies odds. And if you let me, I will help you defy the odds as well. That's a message for somebody. And so I wanna show you this because the, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm a math, I was in college to be a math teacher. So this is kind of my 10 minutes of glory. Uh, and so we're gonna, you're gonna journey with me in some numbers. Um, but I want you to know some odds. Like if you've ever felt the odds against you, you know, we live in Florida. So I have a feeling that we're the one that bring this number way up. But I wanna give you some just general odds. Um, if you're, the odds of you being injured by a lightning strike are only, uh, in, on any given day, are only one in 250 million. But the odds of you getting struck by lightning once in your lifetime are just one in 9,000. Now, I think it's way less than that here. We bring the, uh, the, the numbers up because we have six months of just crazy lightning. Um, but still, one in 9,000. Um, the odds of you reading the Bible every day, one in 10 Americans read the Bible every day. Um, this one was crazy to me. One in two people eat out somewhere every single day. Every day, right? And one out of 20 of those people eat at McDonald's every day. What? Yikes, I know. In Sweden, 40 out of 100 or four out of 10 people are senior citizens. That means they kind of made it. Yet in Fiji, only one out of 50 or two out of 100 people are senior citizens. So I don't know if life expectancy in Fiji is not good or they leave and go somewhere else, but there's all kinds of odds. And here's the one that's crazy. I didn't even know this was still a thing. One in 24 Americans has membership to the National Geographic Society. What? What are the 30 of you doing? Not to mention whoever you are, it's probably all a church online. Why do I tell you that? Because we have so many odds, winning the lottery, uh, getting the job, getting the girl, whatever the case may be. I want you to know that the Christmas story is, is, an, is, a, is actually a story about defying all odds. And I think it's so empowering because when you feel like the odds are against you, you remember that there was literally an impossibility that Jesus would be who he said he would be and do what he said he would do. And if he came to do it, the reason was so that when you're up against the odds, you can rise above them as well. And so for about 700 years, there were prophecies about Jesus. And every time there was a prophecy and they were very specific, it increased the odds of it never happening. And so, for example, just a couple of them. Did you know that in the Old Testament, the prophet Micah, 700 years before Jesus, uh, he 
uh, predicted that there would be a Messiah, but he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, which was a big deal because there, that wasn't a very well-known region. Um, at about the same time, about six, 700 uh, years before, a, a man named Isaiah, he also prophesied that uh, the Messiah would be born to a virgin, which it, you can tell somebody who's been a Christian a long time because we just act like that's no big deal. Like you've been in church too long. If you're like, oh, he was born of a virgin, like that just happens all the time. Like, oh, tell me about it, right? That's a big deal. Like something really important didn't happen and there was still a baby. And I know there's been other claims with some like young people, but once you get to the bottom of it, that's never really the case, right? I swear, me and Mary, right? You know what I mean? Like, so that's like super specific. It's not like, hey, he's gonna be light-skinned. No, no, no. Hey, he's gonna have brown hair. Okay. No, how about we'll go, he's gonna be born of a virgin. Uh, that's never happened. He's gonna be born in Bethlehem. Malachi also uh, penned, um, sorry, not Micah, Malachi penned in about 425 BC that he would be a contemporary of the, the Jerusalem temple. Uh, not to mention the fact that he was predicted to be of the line of Abraham. He was predicted to be of the nation of, of David, that there were very specific predictions about how he would die, where he would die. In fact, it was predicted that he would die in a way that wasn't even discovered 800 years later. There's so many specific predictions about Jesus. And so let me bring this home. What does this mean for us? Uh, what's the likelihood of a person today predicting the exact city and birth of a major powerful leader like 150 years from now? That's what Micah did. What would be the likelihood of predicting the manner of death that said leader would die in maybe a way that doesn't even exist right now? Well, that's basically what Isaiah did. What would, uh, what would be the likelihood? That's also what David did. What would be the likelihood of predicting the date of appearance and what would be happening in the world of a great future leaders hundreds of years in advance? Well, that's what Daniel did. And so you have all of these disconnected people who predicted the light coming and why? Because God in his kingdom defies all odds. And there's also conspiracy theories. Well, they kind of arranged it. Well, how do you arrange to be born in a city? How do you arrange to be born to a family? How do you arrange to be born at a specific time? It's not really possible, especially not to mention how you would die, hadn't been invented, and it was also predicted you would come back to life. And so I want to give you just eight specific prophecies, and there's a reason for the number eight here in just a minute. Eight specific, very specific prophecies about the birth of Jesus, all from different people at different times in different regions, all from the Bible. And I want to talk to you about why this matters. And so throughout the Bible, real quick, I'm going to put these up. You can see that there, this, this prediction and prophecy of the Messiah, the light that was going to come into the darkness, the odds continue to increase that he would, first of all, be born in Bethlehem. Micah said that. There was also a prophecy that he would be born of a virgin. We just said that in Isaiah. Um, also that he would come of the line of Abraham. We see that twice in Genesis. There was also a prophecy that he would also be a descendant of Isaac, which matters because Abraham had more than one kid. We see that twice in Genesis. He would also be a descendant of Jacob. We see that in the book of Numbers. He would also be of the tribe of Judah, unrelated to those other things. That's in Genesis. He would also be the heir to King David's throne. We see that in Isaiah and in Samuel. Well, that's hundreds and hundreds of years later. Also, Isaiah said that he would be called Emmanuel. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, it's pretty agree, universally agreed that there are 48 specific prophecies about Jesus, direct. And, and some of them were around his death, some were around the way he would live, but there's eight just right there that were about his birth. Now, why eight? Because one, uh, not that long ago, a professor at Westmont University actually wanted to look at the probability to either prove or disprove the validity of Jesus' story and really the Christmas story in his whole life and the validity of scripture. What is the probability that anybody could have that specific of a prediction about their life? And so what he did, uh, his, he looked at the probability of one man fulfilling 
prophecies made about the Messiah, but he only picked eight, not 48. Remember, there's 48. He chose eight. And he did this with 12 different classes. He had 600 different students. And then he submitted the figures for review uh, for a committee. And they were universally adopted as credible and accurate by the American Scientific Affiliation. And so what he concluded was they just took one, that the fact that a future leader would be predicted to be born in Bethlehem, that alone was just the odds of that one alone was one in 300,000. So if you take that one and add seven others, and we'll just pick the eight that I just showed you around his birth, after examining only eight prophecies, they conservatively, very conservatively estimated that the chance of any one man fulfilling all eight prophecies in the same lifetime in one person was one in 10 to the 17th power. That's basically a one with 17 zeros behind it. That's that number behind me. If you're kind of a numbers nerd, that is 100 quadrillion. That's that number. Um, that's a lot of zeros. The chances of anybody doing just eight things that were predicted ahead of time were one in, a, in, one into the, one to 10 to the 17th power. Now, um, if you're not a numbers person, or even if you are, there, there's almost, it's almost impossible to contextualize this. So I wanted to give you like what this would be like. The chances of Jesus actually coming, actually being the light, actually being the son of God, actually doing what he said he would do, um, in order to make that number make sense, it would be, um, suppose that we took that number one to, in 10 to the 17th power, and we made every single one of them a silver dollar. Okay, I have a silver dollar right here. Uh, it's marked, and you'll know why in a second. What we would have to do to get that number is we would have to place them side by side, and we would have to cover the entire state of Texas. Anybody ever driven through Texas? Dear God, I've been through, I took a missions trip to Texas and we went from South Padre Island back to Nebraska and we started in the South to the North. I'm telling you, we got up early and left before the sun rose and we drove and the sun came up and it stayed up and it went down and it was dark again. And we were still in Texas. I'm like, we gotta be getting close to Oklahoma, my goodness. It's huge. And so if you took one silver dollar, you would have to cover the entire face of Texas. Not only would you have to cover the entire face, you would have to make it two feet deep of silver dollars. That's the odds. Now, that's the equivalent of almost 600 or 270,000 square miles, 800 miles from north to south and about 775 east to west. Texas is big old Texas. Everything is bigger in Texas, even the bugs. And so... Now, the odds of somebody like Jesus doing what he said he would do, coming, being born, virgin, the, the stars, the Bethlehem, Abraham, all of that. Now imagine, and we've covered Texas with two feet of silver dollars, and then we take one and we mark it like this. And we drive in and we flip it in and then we mix it up. Then we grab a dude and we blindfold him. And we send him on his way and we say, walk as long or as far as you want. We're happy to parachute you into any part of this and you get one shot. And in that one shot, he would have to be at the exact right place of Texas, grab the right depth and be like, ha, what do you know? I found it. The odds of Jesus coming, living, and doing what he said, eight prophecies are the equivalent of that man blindfolded, getting one shot, Texas two feet deep, and on his first try, getting the right coin. That's one in eight prophecies. But the problem is there's 48 prophecies about Jesus. So the odds of Jesus hitting all of them are one in 10 to the 157th power. That's one with 157 zeros behind it. That's actually more atoms than there are in the universe. It's actually an impossible probability. 
because that many people predicted that many things. You talk about odds. The odds could not have been more against Jesus. And he came at arguably one of the worst times, one of the darkest times, one of the most chaotic times in the nation of Israel. Why? Because he came to be and give light. He wasn't just with God in the beginning, but he came to show what God was like. And if you have ever felt like the odds were against you, this story is for you because he showed up and every single thing that was predicted came true. He lived the way they said he would live. He was born the way they said he would be born. And he died the way that they said he would die. And he rose again and he did everything. That's how big God is. He came to be light in the darkness. And when he showed up, here was his announcement. John, uh, we see actually in John chapter eight, later on when Jesus was talking about himself, this is what he came to say. He didn't come to say, I came to set the record straight. You know what he said in John eight twelve? I am the light of the world. Why did he defy odds? To push out the darkness, to restore the chaos, to take the pain, the brokenness, the shame, the not good enough, to include those who got excluded, to give a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chance to those who didn't, and to say to anybody who would receive me, would receive my light, I make my life available. Many won't and many didn't recognize him, but those who did, they experienced a transformation and they get to be called the sons and the daughters of God. What did he do? He came to be light in the darkness. And he didn't just come for the three or 33 years of ministry or 33 years he lived, but he came because everything, if you read his words, you read his life, everything he said is, I have come to show what God is like. Anybody who believes in me, I will put my spirit in you and you will be like me. And it wasn't just for the people who were on earth at that time in history, but he made himself available to everyone. He included Zacchaeus, who was a sellout tax collector who had sworn off of his own people, and he included him. He was constantly including and loving people who were told they were outcasts, they weren't welcome. He was inviting them. He would forego the higher status people of society so that he could be included and welcome those who never felt like they were good enough. He would, the, the people who felt like they had all the things stacked in their favor, he spent his time with those who the odds were against. He rejected the notion of, of religious entities and, and being a higher power, but he came, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. In fact, I came to lay my life down and he set, offered his life to anybody. Who is Jesus? He is the light of the world and he defied all odds. And the more specific and more prob the more specific and the more prophecies there were, the more likely and probable it wasn't happened. Why? Because I don't think he just came so you could believe in him, but he came so that you could have him, so he could be in you, so he could know you. And the moments that you feel it's the darkest, the moments you feel it's the most chaotic, the moments you feel that the odds are so against you that he would remind you, I defied every odd and I came to be light. And if you will let his life in, you will let his light in. He will drive out the darkness and then drive out the chaos because he did it in the beginning. He did it when he came here on earth and it's what he's still doing today. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the hinge of history. Jesus is the hope of all the oppressed. He's the inspiration for all the depressed. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the greatest teacher that ever lived. He's the greatest mind that ever thought. He's the greatest lover that ever loved. He's the greatest movement. He started the greatest movement that has ever spread, that has touched every part of the globe. He's the greatest gift that has ever been given. He mastered life. He conquered death. He alone became sin. He destroyed guilt and shame. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world, and He did it for you. That's who Jesus is. He is the light of the world. That's who Jesus is. And when he said, I am the light of the world, he wants to offer that light to you. And so whether you know him, 
and you have areas of darkness and shame and addiction and, and just tension, he wants, he's waiting for you to invite him in so that his light can shine and drive out the darkness. And if you don't know him, you've never lived for him, you've never accepted him, it's a faith statement in your heart where you say, I want I want Jesus, I want to follow Jesus. And he literally drives the darkness out and you go from death to life and there's a transformation that happens that is unexplainable, but so many of us have experienced and we want you to experience it too. He's the light of the world. And it gets better. Next week is the exclamation point. It's, I can't wait for next week. But this week, week one was where was the light before Jesus came? Week two is Jesus became the light. He said, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light that drives out chaos and darkness. But here's the most important question you will ever answer, ever. It's the same question he asked Peter, who was his lead disciple in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said, I know what everybody else says. I know what the scouting report on me is. I know they say I'm a prophet, I'm Elijah. But then he looked at Peter and he asked him this question and, and it's the most important question you'll ever answer. But he said, look at Peter right in the eyes and he says, but who do you say that I am? And so I ask you the same question. Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a belief system? Is he a fairy godmother? Is he a real God who walked real? He defied all odds and offers himself for real? Is he the tooth fairy? Is it a religious experience or is it a relationship where you experience power and transformation? Who is Jesus to you? And so we wanted to build a little bit of time in the end of the service for you to actually think about that, contemplate that. And so we're going to do two things. We're going to take communion together and then we have a song that we're just going to, we can, you can sing it, but I'd really rather you just kind of think about it. The question that Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Is his light in you? Is his light shining in you? Is there darkness that you need him to drive out? I believe right here in this moment, it's what he wants to do. And so when you came in, you should have been given elements for communion. And so I wanna invite you to grab those. And if you're physically able, would you stand to your feet as we participate in this together? Because if you fast forward to the end of Jesus's life, right before he went to the cross, he basically did this with his disciples. He, he broke the bread and he said, I want you to do this. I want this to become the new Passover. I want this to be the new ritual where you remember me. It's about sacrifice. And he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to every single one of his disciples. And he says, every time you do this, you gather and you break the bread. Remember that my body, my brokenness is offered for your wholeness. And if you will remember my brokenness, I offer you my wholeness in return. And so as we take communion, Let's remember Jesus's broken body on our behalf so we can experience his wholeness. And then in just the like manner, it says he took the cup and he said, this represents my blood. At that time, the only acceptable sacrifice to wash sins away was a blood sacrifice, a pure lamb. And so he said, I'm the new pure lamb. This represents my blood. Every time you drink it, remember, this washes the dirtiest part of you. And if you receive my forgiveness, if you receive my blood, you get to be clean and whole once again. And so let's remember Jesus's blood that was poured out on our behalf. And I think so often in our culture, we just rush to the next thing. And so we built in three or four or five minutes where we can just look inside. We can contemplate. And so the worship team's gonna come and they're gonna sing a, uh, a newer Christmas song, but it's just reminding us to look at telling of what God has done. And so you can sing these songs, the words are up behind us, but I want you to take the next couple minutes as we sing this together and really contemplate that question. Who do you say that Jesus is and where do you need his light to drive out any darkness in your life? And then I'll come close.
John was clear that to all who saw him and to all who received him, he was the light. Have you seen him? Have you received him? Does the light shine in you? Is there some darkness you need him to drive out? I wanna close with a simple prayer. And I just wanna invite you to attach your heart. If there's darkness or there's chaos in your life, I believe that if you make room for him, he's gonna drive it out in a way that only he can. If you've never said yes to following him or believing in him and you're like, this is for me. We wanna, we wanna walk with you. We want you to, to have the community. And so we'd love for you on your way out, not just to attach your heart to this prayer, but text the word KPS to 94,000. And I'm gonna send you a video and we wanna welcome you to the community and help you walk this journey out. Every weekend, there are more people that join the family of God and we just wanna give you that opportunity. If you have some real life heaviness, darkness going on, we have a ministry team in our prayer room that would love to listen with you and pray with you. Others of you are gonna head home or head out to the Christmas village. But I just wanna say a quick prayer and just give you permission. You don't have to repeat anything after me, but I just believe that God, if you give him the room and the space to whatever's going on in your life, whatever tension, whatever darkness, his word for you in this season is let there be light. And I just wanna pray that over you. And so Heavenly Father, I pray for every single one of my brothers and sisters, my friends and my family. God, I don't know every single person's story, but I don't need to because you do. You know where, whether it's a hurricane or tension in a marriage or financial trouble or, 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 or health or anything else, God, you know where there's darkness, you know where there's chaos. And so God, this prayer is for all of us who would say, I need you, God. Would you come in? Would you drive out the darkness? Would you bring light? And I just, God, I speak to that darkness. I say, let there be light. I pray that this Christmas season wouldn't just be filled with crazy schedules and shopping and presents and parties, but God, that we would be reminded that you came, that you were from the beginning and you came to give light and life. And when we think of Christmas, it would be that you defied all odds to come be among us so we wouldn't have to get to you and when we feel like the odds are stacked against us. We would be reminded that the odds were stacked against you once and you defied all odds. And that same power is offered to us if we would give you our life. And so God, we thank you for coming. We thank you that you did come as Jesus. You came Emmanuel to be with us. And we celebrate that this Christmas season. Be with us as on our way out. Bless us and God, I pray that everyone would know that you are real and you are with them as they walk out these doors this week in Jesus' name, amen.